Welcome to That Cancer Conversation, the new podcast from Cancer Research UK. Here is a little stat for you. Every two minutes, someone in the UK is diagnosed with cancer, but survival here has doubled in the last 40 years. However, that's not the be-all and end-all, because the cancer journey that people go on can affect their lives in ways that a lot of people do not think about. Something that you might not know is that we've got an online forum called Cancer Chat. It's often the first place that people end up when they're looking for more information on cancer. And one topic comes up again and again. Fertility. Or more commonly, the question... Will cancer make me infertile? Obviously, that is a huge topic. So to find out a little bit more about what that actually means, I spoke to Richard Anderson, Professor of Clinical Reproductive Science at the University of Edinburgh. So infertility is the inability to conceive after a certain amount of time of trying uh, without contraception, of course. And generally speaking, people use one year of trying to conceive um, as the starting point for that definition. It's generally the treatment for cancer that causes the infertility rather than the disease itself. And that uh, treatment can be commonly chemotherapy, or it could be radiotherapy, or it could actually be surgery that's involved in removing the tumour that also causes the infertility. Uh, but probably the most common is the different sorts of chemotherapy regimens that are damaging to the ovaries and testes. So that makes sense damage to the ovaries or testes, whether by treatment or the cancer itself, can affect fertility. But what does that mean for someone diagnosed with cancer early in their life? It was a really weird experience because the first word that popped into my head was cancer, in inverted commas. And I wasn't sure how to deal with that. Um, and I, I pushed that aside and said, no, it can't be me. I did literally have this conversation in my head with myself. This is Max. He's a 22-year-old medical student at the University of Oxford. In 2011, he discovered a lump on one of his testicles. And keep in mind, you know, I was about 14 at this point, so going through quite a lot, both physically and mentally, um, in terms of puberty and stuff, and, I, and that's what I kind of put it down to. I just said, well, you know, my body's supposed to be changing, maybe this is normal. Um, and I think that on top of the kind of, like, general embarrassment about finding a lump downstairs, um, not really being sure how to talk to my friends about it or my family. That meant that I kind of sat on my symptoms for about six months. Um, and I did just let this thing grow. Like, And I was kind of every now and again, I'd check, keep an eye on it, would forget about it again, try and keep it as kind of like a background thought, basically. Um, until eventually, this was about six months after I'd found the first lump. So I think that was roughly about April 2012 when I found the first one, and then about in October. Then I felt a real change, and it got really, like, way bigger really quickly. Um, and that was, like, that was one of, that was really when I kind of thought, okay, this needs to be investigated now, because now I definitely know it's not anything but something worrying. So after going to his GP and being referred to his local hospital for a series of scans and other tests, Max was diagnosed with testicular cancer at the age of 15. He was then moved to Cambridge, home to one of the biggest centres for children's cancer in the UK. Now this is where he had most of his treatment, 
This involved multiple operations to remove the lump in his testicles and the lymph nodes to where the cancer had spread. Uh, yeah, so sorry, this was um, April 2013, so I was 15, 15 and a half. Um, yeah, and it was yeah quite a big operation, quite a long time in hospital trying to get this sorted. Not too bad, but fairly big. Um, I think it was about four nights. Uh, and then a few months of physio trying to get me back and walking and stuff like that again. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> that was my that was my whole experience. That was that was actually it. That, was that kind of six months six months condensed into a lot of pain, a lot of hardship, also a lot of high points every now and again. Um, and now I'm seven years in remission. I am infertile now, partly because of my treatment, mostly because of the last surgery I had, the big operation, um, which affects my sexual health in some ways. Um, just means that I can't have kids myself uh, through natural. Um, what inverted commas natural um like sex basically yeah okay but like was that something that you were really thinking about because i'm remembering me at age sort of 13 14 15 i wasn't really thinking about my fertility at that point so what was it like for you yeah um so actually when i got moved to cambridge that was i was lucky that was the first time it got brought up um and yeah like i said i was very lucky because it's not the case for everyone it's the case for most people now but um, that's relatively recent. Um, and so the first kind of conversation was, well, listen, um, we're going to have to be taking it out. And that means a worry for your fertility and potential worries about you know, chemo and stuff in the future. Probably best if you start thinking about long-term plans now so that we can have a, a plan you know, in place for when you get through this. And um, that kind of sperm banked as a kind of like, safekeeping things just in case things don't work out in terms of fertility there is no easy way of telling like a teenage boy that they're gonna have to masturbate into a cup and then have it stored with the parents in the room like three hours after the formal diagnosis of cancer like that's just a completely insurmountable task to do it like easily it's funny actually like thinking back to it like i was weirdly kind of calm about the whole thing i think i was clearly in some kind of like you know just state of okay just get me through this um and trying to kind of be um and trying to shield a bit i guess max was fortunate enough to have been able to store his sperm for the future in case he decides that he wants to have children but in order for people to be able to freeze their sperm or their eggs or their embryos but more on that later they've got to be able to actually produce them. So if a person isn't old enough or has other health conditions that prevent this, what are their options? For eggs, it's a case of removing tissue from the ovaries, the part of the reproductive system that produces the egg, and storing it. Later on, this healthy tissue can be reimplanted and used to produce eggs, restoring fertility. But if Max were not able to store sperm, would he have had a similar alternative? I asked Professor Anderson. Yes, so, those options of freezing eggs and sperm are really only appropriate for adults, for post-pubertal men and women. So storing testicular tissue for, for boys or, or potentially adult men is a, is a lot less developed, actually, than storing ovarian tissue. So there are centers around Europe, around the world, that are offering storage of testis tissue for prepubertal boys facing cancer treatment that is very likely to damage their fertility. 
but it's still very experimental because we don't know how really to use this tissue effectively to be able to develop the cells within it into mature sperm and to create pregnancies. Oh, so has that ever actually happened? Because I, I've never really heard any news about this, and this seems quite a big thing, right? It, it actually was achieved uh, quite recently in a monkey. It had a bit of testis frozen and grafted back, and it was able to produce sperm, and they generated a baby monkey from that using IVF. But it's never been done in humans. So although some centers, as I say, are offering this, it is still very experimental, and we really don't know whether it will work, basically, or not yet. Unlike this, the same technique using ovarian tissue has been far more positive. Reimplanting tissue has been shown to restore fertility and lead to successful pregnancies. For many, including Max, conversations about fertility and the impact that cancer or the treatment could have begin after diagnosis. But for Eleanor, her story begins with a pregnancy test. Yeah, so I I was pregnant over Christmas 2016. You know, I'll be really honest and say that when I first did the pregnancy test, I kind of sat on a bathroom floor and sort of mouthed the F word and just kind of probably had a bit of a blank expression on my face for like maybe two minutes. This is Eleanor. She fell pregnant for the first time in November 2016, but for the 27-year-old, something wasn't right. Um, and I just felt super sick. Um, so me getting myself dressed for work in the morning was taking me like two hours. But it was my first pregnancy. I thought it was normal. Um, I think the Duchess of Cambridge, not that long before, had been very publicly admitted to hospital for her morning sickness and I thought well you know if the Duchess of Cambridge got hospitalized for hers then this must be normal um, and so I carried on um, my boobs were getting enormous my belly was getting enormous um, I was feeling very tired you know just things that you would expect to happen as part of a pregnancy uh, I had had a bleed which I wasn't necessarily freaking out about um, but I went to A&E to go and get that checked out. But it wasn't a pregnancy, not at least in the way that she thought. So a molar pregnancy is a basically a, a tumour of the placental tissue. So the placenta uh, develops cancerous um, characteristics and proliferates and uh, therefore can become very serious and potentially, of course, life-threatening. Uh, okay, so this was a molar pregnancy, so it's not actually a real pregnancy, at least not the way we think about it. Then why was the pregnancy test positive? A standard pregnancy test measures a hormone called HCG, which is produced by the placenta. That's the basis for you know every pregnancy test that you do, either we buy it from the chemist or you send a blood sample or a urine sample into a hospital lab. Uh, these molar pregnancies because they're made essentially from the same cells as former placenta, they also produce the same hormone, HCG, but in very large quantities. So if you do a pregnancy test with a molar pregnancy, it will come back positive just as if it was a negative, uh, just a normal pregnancy. Where the difference lies is the amount. So um, sometimes if you do a blood test on a woman with a molar pregnancy, the level of this hormone is enormously high. And sometimes that can be the first clue that things are not right. 
Um, interestingly, in A&E, um, they got me to do a urine pregnancy test and that actually came back negative. Now, the reason for that is um, during a normal pregnancy, your pregnancy hormone level would peak at about 250,000 at the 9 to 12 week stage. So mine had gone to over a million. Um, and because that made it off the scale that they could measure, that test then came back negative. And it was only when they did a test on my blood later on that they were like, oh, hang on, these levels aren't right. And we think it could be this other thing, which doesn't happen very often, um, but they do know about. Okay, so what did you think had happened? Because at this point, you'd only been in A&E for a few hours, right? Or just a little while. I mean, what was the first clue you had that something was off? Yeah, so um, in A&E, they didn't say very much to me. I think there was just a lot to explain. So um, the night that I was there, I kind of said, oh, well, do you think I've had a miscarriage? Um, and the doctor that was dealing with me just kind of quietly nodded, I think, kind of suspecting what the bigger picture might be, but it was just too much to get into until they were able to scan me, confirm some things, explain everything properly. Um, so that was the Friday night that I was in A&E. Um, they had me in for uh, a scan on the Sunday morning. Um, and that scan confirmed that, yeah, there's no baby in there. And we think it's this other thing. Um, and then I think on the Tuesday, um, they booked me in for an evacuation procedure um, where they remove, um, hopefully, all the cells from the mode of pregnancy. Um, now, following that operation, you're given sort of a one in 10 chance that you will go on to need chemotherapy following that. Um, so whilst you've been through this very weird, not very nice ordeal, you're like, okay, well, there's a 90% chance that all is good and I've just got to go home and rest up. Um, unfortunately, I was that kind of 10% that then goes on to have further complications. Um, and it's at that stage when they um, identify you as needing further treatment following the evacuation procedure that you're then kind of put into a cancer treatment program. Okay, so I mean, how long were you on that treatment program for? I was probably involved with that medical department all in all for almost a year. So I fell pregnant sort of November 2016. I think they reviewed me and finished my treatment in October 2017. Um, and following that, you're then told that you're then not able to get pregnant for 12 months. Unlike some others, Eleanor isn't actually infertile. Instead, her treatment period put a temporary halt on falling pregnant. But once her treatment was over, why was she told to avoid getting pregnant? And was what she went through very common? Well, um, um, molar pregnancies aren't terribly rare, but complicated ones that need chemotherapy are. They mostly settle down just with um, removal of the, of the surgical removal of the, of the tissue and then it usually settles down very straightforwardly for the great majority of women. So going on to needing chemotherapy, and particularly relapsing chemotherapy, that is rare. 
So women are often recommended not to fall pregnant for a while after any cancer treatments, um, particularly. Uh, and there are two main reasons for that. One is to make sure that uh, all the cancer drugs are out of their system and any effects that those drugs may have had on their developing eggs will have resolved um, because the, these effects tend to affect the growing eggs um, over the course of a few months, not the ones that haven't started to grow. So that is one aspect. There's also the need to make sure that the patient really is well and over her treatment and that you know she's on the way to putting this well behind her. From the point of view of a molar pregnancy, um, there is more of a risk of a further preg molar pregnancy or relapse if a subsequent pregnancy happens after too short an interval. So there's a separate slightly issue for that specific diagnosis. So, Eleanor, I mean, you've gone through this treatment and, you know, all the emotion of that. And now you're at a point and they've told you, you cannot get pregnant for one more year. Um, and that's a difficult thing for for women to make decisions about and factor in because you know potentially you're wiped out of any baby making for two years um us ladies do have to think about this biological clock thing unfortunately um and if you're somebody that's perhaps getting further towards the end of what might be your your baby making years you know that that's really hard to be told that you're then going to be out of action from that point of view for for a 24 month period so um yeah there's just an awful lot of things to consider um and a lot of angles um my husband did struggle with it and I think he was very sad about the fact that you know we weren't having a child um but also very conscious of the best ways that he could support me and I think in him thinking about supporting me all the time there was a level of that kind of self-care for himself that got lost um and maybe threw up some issues there all right so you and I we're talking in late 2020 so that is two years since you finished that no getting pregnant for 12 months period so what have things been like since then I mean, what have things been like for you this year so I turned 30, so I just wanted to like have a bit of a jolly doing that, I decided, because I thought I deserved one. Um, and then a couple of months after I turned 30, um, my husband and I started trying. Um, I had a miscarriage beginning of March, um, which is actually how the relapse of the original cancer got picked up um so again joys of being a woman you know you have this miscarriage you're then sent in again for a really unpleasant evacuation procedure again um this one I was awake for so that was that was odd it wasn't nice but um you know just stuff that ladies have to do unfortunately um following that they were monitoring me and my levels just weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing which unfortunately you know, is an indicator of of this cancer resurfacing. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, um, end of February, beginning of March, I was, I was hopeful again, um, feeling a bit more ready for it this time, maybe being that, you know, I'm a bit older. 
uh, but it's it's not to be for 2020 which is a bummer because I think if you're stuck at home with your husband like you might as well try and make a baby there's only so much tv we can watch um but yeah <laughs> I, I'm told I'm told that that's that's well yeah I mean obviously I'm I'm allowed to have sex just to clarify for, for people listening so I am allowed to have sex um but I am having to use contraception and yeah I mean just practically um as I say I think lockdown is quite a useful patch of time for people to think about making a baby if that's something that they want So unlike Max, whose fertility was affected by his treatment, Eleanor had hers paused while going through treatments, but are situations like hers really that unusual? What's a more common situation, Alex, is women with breast cancer who also have a long delay because um, when they're recommended to have hormone treatments after their chemotherapy. And that nowadays can be a recommendation to take that for up to 10 years. So if your fertility has already been a bit reduced by your chemotherapy, and then you're being asked to take hormone treatment for another 10 years, that really is going to limit your reproductive options and your ability to then have children. Um, So the the discussions and decisions about stopping that treatment partway through to take a break effectively and have a pregnancy and then go back on it, these are really difficult uh, decisions that women with breast cancer increasingly have to face. And so I kind of ignored it for a few weeks. I, you know, I thought I'd worn a bra that really was very ill-fitting and and caused my nipple to invert. I mean, when I think about that now, I'm just like, how ridiculous was I at that point in time, you know, with my thoughts. But but that's genuinely where where my head went. Like I didn't for a minute think there could be anything be anything wrong with me. Um, and then it didn't it didn't you know it didn't remedy itself. It sort of kind of started to get a bit worse. And I was thinking, oh, hold on, this is this is looking worse than it did a week or two ago. And um, my husband actually said to me, you, maybe you should get that checked out because it doesn't really look very normal. Um, and I think when a guy sort of tells you to check something out, you probably take it more seriously. This is Krina. In 2013, at the age of 33, she began to notice that something wasn't quite right with her breast. After going to the GP and later being referred for tests, Krina was diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, After having a mastectomy and radiotherapy, her cancer required chemotherapy, a longer treatment that she hadn't expected. When I initially thought I was just going to have a mastectomy and radiotherapy, um, I foolishly thought that I would, you know, go on this journey with cancer for three months, get my breast removed, get my, you know, radiotherapy done and then revert to sort of the career-driven woman that I always was who who focused really on just success in my workplace and that was that was kind of what I, what I was programmed to do and I even said to my boss look I'll be back within four months and and things will be back to normal and I think he probably thought I was crazy at the time but um that's kind of where I was at in my head and then this guy tells me I need chemotherapy and I just thought oh my gosh, this is going to be a lot longer than I ever planned for and it's going to be a lot tougher and it's going to be a lot more public. And I think that latter thing is what I wasn't ready for. So this this sort of unexpected change, you know, you weren't quite ready for that. So where was your head at at this point? Like, what were you thinking? You no, know, it, was, it was really, really difficult. And, you know, as I saw my oncologist and he told me what would happen and he told me about, you know, issues with my fertility and he told me about being put into a medical menopause and 
all of these things that were going to happen to me, I just felt more and more um, stripped of my femininity and I just felt hollow. I just thought, well, I'm now just a body. Well, where does that leave me? Like, does this guy who's my husband still find me attractive in any way? Am I still the wife he wants me to be or is his family just going to say well do you know what trader in we can get you a better model i guess at this point you're making so many decisions like things are happening quite quickly for you so i mean did you think about sort of what you wanted in regards to you know having children um you know talking about your fertility did you talk to your oncologist about this um i you know before actually i started chemotherapy i did some um, urgent so if it was it was deemed as urgent IVF because we knew I would potentially lose my fertility and again um you know it we're, we're again it's probably a, a cultural thing I didn't know really any Indian couples who didn't have babies and I'd always wanted babies I'd always seen my future as a mum um I, I was I am and always will be quite maternal um so I sort of had a chat with my oncologist at the time and I said, look, I, I want to preserve my fertility. My personal choice would be to do a round of IVF and harvest some eggs. And um, he turned around and he said to me, look, you know, my job here is to save your life, not to create new life. Um, and your life is at risk, but I will give you two weeks. And if you can make it work in two weeks, then that is fine. Um, you can go ahead and do it. But if, you know, your cycle doesn't come in in those two weeks, we're not waiting any longer. Um we you, we, you need to get onto chemo. When it comes to preserving fertility, oftentimes people do not have much time to make quick choices after they're diagnosed. I asked Professor Anderson to explain just how important quick decision-making is in this process. So this is indeed a very time-sensitive uh, aspect of it and really relies on all sorts of um, aspects of the way their care is organised to make this work. So you need to have... Um, the opportunity to be informed that your fertility might be at risk and to start off with that conversation from your oncology team. So the whole topic to start with just needs to be raised. And if it isn't, then nothing's going to happen, unfortunately. But if it is raised and you then need to have time to think about it and decide whether or not something you, you are needing to try and pursue, then, of course, it means a referral to the reproductive medicine treatment, uh, reproductive medicine centre, and then ongoing care from there okay so i know about freezing sperm um because sort of max mentioned that and you know a lot of people heard about freezing eggs but freezing embryos that's a thing right so freezing eggs and freezing embryos um both involve the same starting process of uh, basically they both involve the first half of uh, an ivf cycle where the woman has daily injections for about two weeks to stimulate her ovaries and then the eggs are recovered. And then the eggs can either be frozen just straight away, and that's egg freezing, or the eggs can be fertilized with a man's sperm, and that turns them into embryos, and the embryos can then be frozen. An embryo freezing is technically easier than egg freezing, and so has been around for a lot longer. But the problem is that it isn't just the woman's property, that embryo. It also, in law, belongs to her partner if he provided the sperm. And that can produce difficulties down the road because, of course, both partners then need to agree to use those embryos. So it's, in many ways, simpler to freeze eggs because then it's just the woman's decision on using them and she can clearly 
uh, many years may pass and her situation may change. And that keeps her options open as to how she wants to use them. So in order for Karina to be able to preserve her fertility in any way, she would have to quickly start injecting herself with something known as follicle-stimulating hormone. This hormone is usually produced during the menstrual cycle and is what leads to the production of follicles in the ovary and increased estrogen levels, starting the process of egg harvesting. But for her to actually preserve her facility, she would have to complete this side of a process in just 14 days. Fortunately, she had luck on her side. My period came in the very next day and the timing couldn't have been more divine because I needed to be on day one of my cycle to start um, medication to stimulate my uh, follicles so that we could uh, collect eggs. So, um, you know, I started then two days after that appointment on my 34th birthday, I started IVF treatment and spent the next 10 to 12 days injecting myself with hormones Um and then uh, within two weeks had collected um, 13 eggs, of which 12 fertilised and were put in the freezer. And um, on that day, uh, a lady, an embryologist, called me and she said, oh, Queen, I just wanted to let you know you've had a really good result. We've um, collected 13. We harvested 12 embryos because one broke um, as we as we went to freeze it. But it's a brilliant result and you should be so proud of yourself for, for getting through that. And she was so empathetic on the phone and so happy for me, but I was just filled with sadness. How come? You see a lot of couples going through IVF and I just think they're doing it with hope and they're doing it with love and they're doing it to create this life that they've longed for for so long. And for me, I felt like I went through IVF for the sake of going through IVF because something else was going to take away my what what I had dreamt of. It wasn't you know, it wasn't a conscious decision that my husband had made to try and try for a baby at that point in time. It was, well, there's, there's no other option. I mean, that must have been really tough because, you know, you're injecting yourself with a hormone that's making your body produce more estrogen and you've got a cancer that's sensitive to estrogen. So it's that kind of like a balance there of, you know, risk versus reward. I mean, how did that make you feel at that point? Well, have I just created these embryos and if I die what will happen to them will they ever become babies you know would my would my husband ever find a way of using them to keep a piece of me alive um or you know have I just put myself at more risk because I I there was a risk of injecting hormone I had an estrogen sensitive cancer and I thought have I been foolish and just created more risk to, to what's already a bad situation um or if these ever come to life, you know, will I will I make babies and then die straight afterwards anyway because my cancer comes back? And so I never really had a huge amount of love towards those embryos. Um, it was just a matter of fact, something that I had to do. Um, and I got on with it and did it and then sort of parked it and, and let it be and and then sort of made my way through the rest of my treatment with, um, with, with breast cancer. Okay, so that's your treatment starting in 2013 and you were there for three years. So coming out, the other side of that you know 2016 I mean what was that like for you you know I headed into sort of the summer of 2016 feeling pretty good like in my in my mind in my mental health um I was in my head over the worst of my ill health um I was looking to the future we were we were thinking about those embryos that I'd frozen in 2013 I'd spoken to Professor Smith my oncologist about it a couple of times and just said, look, I still, I do want to be a mum. Like I, I now know I'm going to live and cancer's not going to kill me and I do want to be a mum. And 
he just said, look, it's too early to come off your medication. Let's review it later. Let's review it later. Every time I'd asked him, we'd been we'd been putting it on hold. So I'd started to look into surrogacy. So I sort of got actively involved in some surrogacy forums and was just sort of socialising with people on on surrogacy boards and stuff. And in um, then in the July of 2016, my husband and I took a holiday, which was um, it was a celebratory holiday for us of, you know, new beginnings because we, we'd got to that point where actually, you know, we'd made it through cancer. We were still married somehow. We, you know, we were still together. We still wanted to be together and um, we wanted to look to the future. So we decided to go on this massive holiday, enjoy ourselves and then come back home and really sort of think about how and what we wanted to do to shape our future and our family. And so off we went. And so the pair decided to go off to Canada for a well-earned holiday. But unfortunately, Karina began to feel ill as soon as she got off the plane. So ill that she ended up in hospital. Um, I, anytime I laid down, I just felt like I was drowning. Um, I couldn't just I couldn't get any breath in my lungs. And so I would sit up when I sat up. I would feel like I, I was needing to vomit to breathe. Um, the only way I could get breath into my lungs was by massively coughing um, really really loudly and eventually um, after every other medic had been in and you know every vein in my arms and legs was was uh, was filled with cannulas a cardiology team came in and they put an ultrasound onto my heart and at that point someone um, from their team whispered in my ear and just look I know you can't talk I know you can't breathe but if you're you had a chemotherapy that was red in colour please squeeze my hand so I knew that was I knew I had had epirubicin, which was red. Um, so I squeezed his hand, and at the same time, the guy scanning my heart had seen that my heart was in a pretty poor state. And together, they hit this emergency button, and they just said she needs to get to cardiac intensive care now. She's in acute heart failure. So here's what had happened. Karina's life-saving chemotherapy treatment had damaged her heart, a rare complication of some chemotherapy drugs. While she was being treated in cardiac intensive care, her heart had lost almost 95% of function. Doctors told her family to make arrangements to see her for a final time. Her sister flew out to Canada within 24 hours, and Karina recorded messages on her phone for all of her loved ones. But, amazingly, she pulled through. They, the, to be fair, the people looking after me just couldn't understand how I was actually still coherent and, and actually still talking to them. But but somehow I was, and it got a you know it just felt okay once I was able to breathe I thought I'm gonna make it through I'm definitely gonna make it through this and but at the same time something bad happening something good happened didn't it ironically at the same time um when I was in Vancouver actually when I was in hospital I'd received a message from a lady um from a surrogacy forum and she just said look I've been following your story I think you're incredible I would love to get you to know you more and, um, you know, I'm a surrogate and in, and we just never know where, where this will end, but let's just get to know each other. And I said to her, well, yeah, you might think I'm incredible for getting through cancer, but you're not going to believe it. I'm in intensive care with heart failure. So, you know, you I don't know if I'm ever going to be a mum again. And she goes, well, I think you will be. And I, you know, I'm not I'm not giving up on you. So you shouldn't give up on you. So let's keep talking. And we kept talking. And then I got back to England and we talked some more and then we met up and then we became friends and she then at the beginning of 2017 was like look I want to I want to help you you're in, you, you know if anyone deserves a baby it's you guys and look at how far you've come you're not going anywhere you're going to be an incredible mum and I'm going to make you a mum and then in sort of the summer of 2017 we decided to go ahead and we 
um underwent so we went we'd found a clinic that would treat us um for for IVF again and we transferred one of those embryos from 2013 um into her and hoped for the best and and, and we sort of we made a single transfer heartbreakingly lost every other embryo after that um so everything that we had was inside the uterus of this other woman and we just prayed and prayed that she would she would she would you know she would grow it into a baby and 10 days after our transfer she did a pregnancy test and we took some pregnancy blood tests at our clinic and it confirmed that she was pregnant um six weeks after that we went back to the clinic and I saw a heartbeat um inside her womb and I couldn't quite believe what was going on here you know I was now pretty fit and healthy I was able to walk places um I was doing things that normal people would do and now I was sitting here sort of wondering if this was real and if I really was going to become a mum again um but that's exactly what happened and the months passed and her pregnancy progressed and we watched her bump grow and connected more and more and in the April of 2018 my daughter was uh, welcomed into this world Amala from an embryo created in 2013 in the womb of a stranger who came into my life in the midst of heart failure um, and it was absolutely miraculous and you know that little girl is now two and a half years old and she's she's my world and she's healed me more than I ever even knew I needed healing um, and she's sort of the reason that that we all keep going and she's she's everything to me and but Karina did not want to stop there. Even though she'd lost all the embryos they'd made in 2013, she pushed forward using another surrogate and egg donation. And in 2020, she welcomed three triplet boys. This has been That Cancer Conversation. We were produced in Cancer Research UK's digital news team. We couldn't have pulled any of this together without Max, Eleanor and Karina, who generously gave their time alongside Professor Richard Anderson. Now, if you've come this far and want to learn a bit more about cancer and fertility, you can find some resources in the podcast show notes. To be the first to listen to our next episode, you can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.